who are we rooting for? Welcome to Sincast, presented by CinemaSins. Welcome, everybody, to the Sincast. This is Chris Atkinson from CinemaSins, joined, as always, by the voice of CinemaSins, Jeremy Scott. Hello. And from Music Video Sins, Barrett Share. Howdy. And uh, we are continuing our series of best of the years that we've been alive, and uh, today is 1987. Knowledge. You're happy because you got nothing. You got nothing. Nothing. Bullshit, I can't hear you. Sound off like you got a pair. Give me that baby, you warthog from hell! How many assholes we got on this ship, anyhow? No! And 1987 is an incredible year, and we're going to be here for a while. (laughs) (laughs) Um, 87 uh, uh, rivals uh, 84 and 82, the other 80s years that we've uh, gone over that were really, really good. Uh, But I think this one might beat it um, because of just the sheer top heaviness of it. And then like a lot of the um, uh, other just generally good movies that are on here. um, Yeah. But, uh, you know, I guess right off the bat, what do you want to say? Princess Bride? Rob Reiner continuing a a streak that is going to go into the 90s. Um, The Princess Bride has become, uh, in every word, a classic. Um, And uh, I don't know. I mean, if we ever get around to doing an everything wrong with, it might end up having like 15 sins in it because it's so good. (laughs) That's got the most, the biggest disparity of fans just because it's so relatable on so many different levels. Like you can have like 20 year old hipsters that love this movie. And then you can have like Ted Cruz that this is his favorite. (laughs) (laughs) I think think that's correct. Well, that's that's one of the things, you know, we've got a couple of heavy dramas in this year with the untouchables and full metal jacket that Mm -hmm. are fantastic, right? That we're going to be debating this for several minutes, but, you know, to the point about Princess Bride and its cultural impact, there are people, you know, who are teenagers today who know that movie and love that movie, Princess Bride, but have never seen Untouchables or Full Metal Jacket. Like, right. great mm-hmm. as those two movies are, they have a certain generational foundation that hasn't bled through to future generations the way Princess Bride has. Um, at least that's my opinion. And I, uh, I recently read something uh, from Carrie Elways that was talking about how you know, he really enjoys still being identified with that character and, mm-hmm. uh, and like, and how the movie was not a hit when it came out, right. It mm-hmm. Did not do anything. And then suddenly he says 10 years later, when people are watching it on video and everything, uh, that's when he knew that it had, had found a new life on home video. Um, mm-hmm. Uh, and I was one of those people. I saw this probably in the early nineties. Um, the first time, and uh was was just very struck by it you know it was not exactly it wasn't the absurdist humor of monty python but right. it had some of that in it and but it but it also had those elements of never-ending story that i love too mm-hmm. so it, and it did it so well yeah yeah, yeah one great. of the reasons that i think it's endured and that it people of the the next generation like it so much is because it's so easily digestible and it's so easily quotable mm-hmm. right? like there, there's a lot of like 
probably it's got to be the most on this list between like I you know you killed my father prepared to die and as you wish and you know uh the mostly dead and all that stuff mm-hmm. like it's just like you know it, you can go on and on and on about like inconceivable all the all the different <laughs> quotes from like yeah um yeah I, I think we could do a whole podcast on the princess bride but uh i'm gonna go on to the next couple ones here you uh, jeremy you mentioned full metal jacket and the untouchables it's funny uh full metal jacket often i think wrongly uh is considered just a first half movie like the first yeah. half is good and the second half isn't but i just think the first half is better than the second half mm. i think the second half is great um, it's just that it, they, they gave you a whole full arc, uh, of just amazingness in the first half and there was no way it could match it in the second half. Um, but I love the second half and I love the whole movie full metal jacket. Wasn't Arlie Ernie's performance almost totally improvised? Yeah, he was, uh, I believe he was also a drill instructor Yeah, uh, and, uh, and they had some other actor. Uh, who was going to play that. And he was, a he was just there as sort of a consultant. Uh-huh. And, uh, and, no, and then, so he went out and he just started doing stuff. And Stanley Kubrick <laughs> was like, why don't we just make him the guy? <laughs> Do it like that. Yeah. And then he's built a career out of it ever since. <laughs> totally man. has made a career out of that. Uh, but yeah, full metal jacket basically is, is, is one huge, like one amazing mini movie in the first hour. And then, yeah. and then it's got, you know, it's got your, I mean, I guess your typical Vietnam stuff in the next hour. Um, but, um, I've always, I've always enjoyed the, the full part of it. Now, the next one, I know that Jeremy and I are very high on, and that's the untouchables. Mm-hmm. Um, Brian De Palma's, uh, I think his best movie. Yeah. Um, it is I, the, every time I watch it and it does come on quite a bit on HBO, um, so much so that the Blu-ray version that I have, it was still in its wrapper, <laughs> uh, you know, cause I see it on the HBO all the time. But, uh, but, uh, but like, uh, every time I watch it, I sit there and I go, man, Brian De Palma is directing his ass off in this yeah. movie. Mm-hmm. Yeah, totally. And it's got one of the best scores I think of all time, but absolutely for any kind of a crime movie. Um, I tweeted, this is many months ago, but I, it, it had come on HBO, and, and like you, I watch it when it comes on, and I think I tweeted out, I would rather listen to the first five-minute you know, overture of The Untouchables than watch any other complete movie. <laughs> right. <laughs> such a great tone setter, um, and that rhythmic, oh God, it just gives me chills even thinking about it. This uh, this movie also gave Sean Connery his only Oscar, I believe. I don't think he won anything else. He may not even been nominated for anything else that I can think of. It's just an overall unreal movie, just every bit of it. And there's famous scenes in it. Of course, the train station scene is mm. is its most famous. Uh, but really, the whole movie's got just great stuff in it. I mean, there's not one moment where it's just like, oh, this is kind of going slow. Yeah, it doesn't drag. All the performances are right on point. Um, I just, I love it. I love it, love it, love it. And it's going to be hard. going to be hard not to pick that uh, for my first vote. <laughs> it really yeah, is going to be hard. I hadn't seen this in, in ages, like probably since the, the early to mid-90s. And I was talking to you guys about it, I think, last weekend. And Jeremy said, you know, when you watch it again – make sure to, to notice all the shots that De Palma tries and pulls off in that thing. 
And I watched it actually last night and I was like, I was just amazed yeah. by the the scope of it's it's like Hitchcockian almost. Yeah. Like he, he's just showing off at some points, you know. It's like, you know, look what I can do. I can do this type of tracking shot. <laughs> I can do this this POV and everything. Even it's, the most incredible. Even the most just smallest of scenes has something in it that's just breathtaking. Just the scene where uh, they, they, you know, Kevin Costner goes in and starts, I guess, investigating the gangster that's, that's, uh, brought in the note. He's, he's basically giving a note to Capone and there's, a, and, and Costner comes out there and starts talking to him and telling, telling the guard, don't let him back in the courtroom and all that. Even a scene like that has just like amazing stuff in it. Just the shots are breathtaking. Yeah. And then after that, of course, is another great, just like bravura type of thing, you know, uh, yeah. that, you know, there's that, that, that interplay between those two characters. This um, movie also has uh, a guy almost nominated for our poor bastard podcast a few weeks back. Um, the guy in the, the guy that's running the liquor thing in the bank when they finally mm-hmm. decide to get serious and Connor is like, everybody knows what a liquor is. It's just whether you got the balls to go get it. So yeah. they go down there and raid the place. This guy's doing his job. He didn't have any chance to stop him, but he sure gets killed with a baseball bat the next day by Capone <laughs> just to make an example out of him. Uh, yeah. Even though it, it was only Sean Connery's fault that that raid happened. Right, right. <laughs> All right, guys, what, what are some others that stand out to this you? This is a huge action year. I mean, mm-hmm. And both good movies and culturally, we got Predator, RoboCop, Lethal Weapon, and Running Man. Yes, yes, and and uh, and over the top, <laughs> and over the top. Um, you know, this was that year where Predator and uh, Running Man came out, and it had uh, Schwarzenegger and uh, Jesse the Body Ventura uh, both in both movies, both yeah. future governors. Um, <laughs> how's that happen uh but both of those movies are just those are those are like perfect action movies they are you know when you talk about uh you talk about like movies just being like you know oh well they're not shooting for anything big there they're just just a big dumb action movie that's the type of dumb action movie that i want right there nothing that's like adds you know 45 minutes to the runtime a la michael bay where it's like we've got a you know uh, go through all the the different habits of our main characters and everything. Just stick Schwarzenegger in a jungle or a game, or a game arena, and let him kill some people, and then go on. Yeah, yeah. Well, and this is—I uh, just saw Predator again last week uh, for the first time in a while, and I forgot how many long stretches, almost almost like Kubrick would do in this movie where there's no dialogue. We're just kind of watching them try and figure out what the hell is going on. Um, like if we ever send this movie, you know, not for quality, but just for how much dialogue or how little dialogue there is, it wouldn't be very many sins in this movie because yeah. there's a lot yeah. of quiet moments. Yeah. Um, the whole climax is dialogue free, basically. Except oh, for a it, couple of singers. Yeah. oh, and it's so beautiful. Yeah. It's so beautiful the way that's done. It's so, uh, I mean, I wish more stuff could be like that. Uh, what else stands out to you guys? Jesus. I, you know, what caught my eye was a double dose. One that's very, very popular, and one that maybe people haven't seen of Steve Martin comedies. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And of course, Planes, Trains, and Automobiles is the most famous one. Yep. But 
Uh, he also did a movie called Roxanne. Yeah. Uh, that oh, Roxanne. Really, really great. Yeah, it's it great. really is. By the way, Planes, Trains, and Automobiles continues the John Hughes train. He's done yeah. fi- five years in a row. He's made six movies that are all classics. Wow. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, yeah, I love Planes, Trains, and Automobiles. Roxanne doesn't get talked about as much, but it's fantastic. It's the, uh, you know, sort of the modern retelling of Cyrano de Bergerac and all that. Yeah. Um, but he's he's great in it. And he, you know, I mean, it's it's just one of those. I mean, I, I love the scene in the, the bar where he has yeah. to come up with all the insults that the, these guys are not creative enough to come up with about his nose. <laughs> yeah. He's, he's right. Like flexing his muscle at this point, like he can do anything because there are two incredibly different characters that he plays in those two movies. Oh, totally. And, and he, he just nails both of them. This is also the year that the Coen's sort of came into, uh, you know, I guess this was their huge break of a movie raising Arizona mm. blood simple, obviously is still considered like one of their, their great, Greatest movies, but I think Raising Arizona sort of uh, sort of got them into that strata. Started to get them in the stratosphere, um, and it's and it and it's such a funny movie. And this is one of the best Nick Cage movie uh, performances you'll ever see. Even though I don't think he got along with the Coen Brothers very much, hmm. um, but uh, but Raising Arizona also highly quotable, and and you just hear all you hear it everything from that movie to this day. Where did uh, the Academy go in 1987? The Last Emperor won Best Picture in 1987. I have seen this movie twice. Uh, the first time I watched it, I hated it because I think I was actually 10 when I saw it. Um, uh, yeah, I mean, I saw it. I was way too young to watch this. But um, but the second time I watched it, I was like, this is okay. I just, I, it's, I, I had, there's better movies. It's not a bad, it's not, it's sort of continues what the Oscars were doing in this decade where they were, they just kept on going for the epic, you know, the epic movie. It's, it follows in the line of the Gandhi and out of Africa and all that. It's it's like, well, we've got this in front of us. We better vote for it. Um, It's what it seems like anyway. But I mean, there's a lot of, there's a lot of like amazing things in it. This is a Bernardo Bertolucci movie. They actually got to shoot inside the forbidden city. Uh, which is something that nobody had ever been able to do before. Um, so that's a, that's a big thing. And the story is, is, you know, it's a, it's a, a kid's rise into power basically. But, uh, I, I mean, I'm, I'm not, I'm not high on it. The other, um, big dramas from the year, at least, uh, like I remember Moonstruck getting a lot of discussion about at least yeah. acting performances, um, mm-hmm. And Wall Street came out in 87. Yes. Wall Street's another hugely quotable movie. Yeah. Where do you stand on Wall Street? Do you guys like that? Love Wall Street. I like it a lot. Yeah. I I love that movie. I I, I actually, I mean, if if it was in any other year, it would be contending for my vote. That's Uh, Michael Douglas just chewing the fuck out of scenery, isn't it? Yeah. And this is Charlie Sheen at his height of Charlie Sheenness. I mean- (laughs) This is this is that this is that for him. The I was talking about this uh, one of the uh, one of the podcasts we did a few weeks ago. Uh, the scene where the um, they he gets arrested and everything. He he first walks into his office and he's like, "Hey, Carol's, how's it going?" And everybody's kind of like just dead. It's like a funeral almost inside the office. But he's the one that's excited. He has no idea what's about to hit him, and he gets in the office and he gets arrested. And he has to go back through that office where he was just like being a jackass, basically. And he's he's uh, he's he's he starts crying and uh, 
he actually is remembering uh, if the trivia is to be believed, he's remembering uh, when his dad had a heart attack on apocalypse now. Oh, wow. Mm. And uh, mm. so he's walking back through there and he's, he's just, that's sort of his, I guess, sense memory thing going through when he's walking through the, uh, the office there. Oh man. Yeah. Um, but uh, it makes good drama as we saw with, I mean, if you do it right. So this was Oliver Stone, right? And yeah. Under his hands and like, uh, Scorsese for Wolf of Wall Street. Like if you, you that's a, a lot of drama that you can use to, uh, with the right story to really, uh, make that, make that sing. Did he write it too? I, I think he did. But, uh, Oliver Stone, I believe his dad was a stockbroker. Mm. Uh, and he sort of dedicated it to his dad at the end. And, uh, it's sort of a movie that was, it was made in response to the, the Keating five stuff and the, uh, the crash that happened, I believe in 86, Mm. Um, or, or it was something that he could see coming or a lot of people could see coming. He was already writing it. This came right after platoon, by the way, he got, he, he did platoon the previous year. Um, but, wow, that's uh, it's a good one, two punch. Yeah. Um, according to uh, Oliver Stone and Stanley Weiser were the co-writers, um, on this, but, uh, yeah, wall street, if you want to see something that's just quotable as shit, just watch wall street. It's just never endingly entertaining. Um, uh, I got to talk about broadcast news a little bit. Yeah. Mm. Another one really high on the list. Yeah. Um, James Brooks, um, uh, mm-hmm. as as William Hurt, Albert Brooks. Um, it's basically behind the scenes at, at you know, network news in, I think DC, you know, William Hurt is really great on camera, really great at reading the news, really pretty, but he's stupid. And, <laughs> yeah. and Albert yeah. Brooks is like a, Gift, gifted writer with the way he writes his news reports and he's really insightful and has a lot of knowledge, but he's Albert Brooks. And so <laughs> the dichotomy there is between the two of them is that Albert Brooks is the better newsman, but uh, William Hurt's the better performer and they will, you know, he'll never be able to, to get to the level that William Hurt is on just for that one fact. Again, this is an unexpected theme. Another of my almost poor bastard moments was in here um, where Albert Brooks finally gets a chance to read the news because everybody else wants to go to the correspondence dinner. (laughs) Yeah. And he just gets a case of the worst flop sweats you've ever seen in your life where they're bringing down blow dryers in between while, you know, remote reporters are talking and bringing him a change of shirt. And at one point he lifts up his arms and half the shirt is wet. And he's like, is this that visible? (laughs) Uh, Like somebody bumps the hanging background wire logo and it starts swinging. And so somebody grabs it. Your hands in the shot. Your hands well, in the shot. And meanwhile, despite all of this, he reads the news perfectly. He does. Like everything else is is you know is the distraction to this. Is <laughs> like, that he's you know he just la- uh, the last line of his report before we're done watching this disastrous thing is like and forty one people are dead and it cuts to commercial. <laughs> he goes, I wish I was one of them. <laughs> that's another thing this is james l brooks at the height of his writing powers and there's so many great lines in this but my favorite one of all time is when they're at that party and one of the executives is talking to holly hunter and he's like it must be nice to always believe you know better to always think you're the smartest person in the room and she goes no it's awful 
there's so many lines like that. Like, uh, and there was another one I remember where, where, you know, William Hurt is like sitting there saying he, you know, cause everybody's feeding him lines and there's a point where he doesn't get the line fed to him. And he's like, in other words, I think we're all okay. And you see Robert Prosky in the, in the room go, who the care, who the hell cares what you think? <laughs> I just love the little, uh, there's that one moment where they're bustling through the director's studio and the two guys have written the new news theme. Oh, yeah. They bring in a little Casio keyboard. And like, <laughs> That's actually the right song, by the way, too. Yes, it is. It is. <laughs> right. So great. Um, Sorry uh, for that detour. Um, all right. So also we, we talked a few, we talked about some comedies. We didn't talk about Spaceballs, which oh, is, we got to talk about Spaceballs. Yeah. Which is, uh, is Mel Brooks, uh, might be his last great comedy. Um, yeah, I, I, I he, he had some moments with like Robin Hood men in tights and stuff mm. like that, but I think this is his last great one. And he, even, even if you want to, if you wanted to compare it to his, his other ones, it's not as good as those, but Spaceballs is fantastic. Yeah. Talk about quotable, man. Oh, yeah. I see your Schwartz is as big as mine. <laughs> One yeah. question about this. Why does Rick Moranis' or Dark Helmet's uh, character go into like this weird Jamaican accent at the, the very end? You I, remember this where he's I, like, oh, you fell for the oldest trick in the book, man. What is with you, man? Oh. I think it's just him. I just think it's just him doing the over over the top gotcha on the joke. Because he's he's just going over the top on his already existing accent, but I could be wrong. That's a weird movie, though. Like centering a movie around like the ability of dudes to like grab their junk and like you know a big penis shape. Yeah, <laughs> laser comes out. Of you are describing why I never saw this movie until well past college. <laughs> my parents were not about to let me watch this movie. It had some it had some pretty uh, pretty raucous humor, but like everybody, I mean John Candy, Joan Rivers, Bill Pullman. Daphne Zuniga and, and Rick Moranis, like everybody was really, really good. It, it, was that Jeffrey Tambor is the, the second in command too? Yes. Yes, yeah. it was. He's yeah. so um, Yeah, he is. Uh, and, and that's another thing. Jeffrey Tambor like runs through a lot of these comedies. We talked about Mr. Mom earlier. He's in that too. Mm. Um, uh, he's been around forever. It's no wonder he's so good at what he does. Um, but yeah, Spaceballs, it just, it, it goes to show like how huge Star Wars was in the, in the day, like come out with a movie four years after the last Star Wars came out and, you know, and make something like that. And everybody's like, all right, I'm with this. Couldn't make a, you know, couldn't make a movie like, you know, I don't know. There's not very many you could movies you could spoof four years after the fact and, and still get, you know, be relevant. Um, another one we should talk about, at least in terms of spawning a subgenre, is Fatal Attraction. Yes. Oh, yeah. Because I don't know that there was much of that before that movie. And then after that movie is when you start getting all of these, like, what's the... Jennifer Jason Lee roommate one single white female. Yeah. And then of course all of these, like every other movie on like lifetime and Hallmark channel are like somebody stalking somebody. <laughs> yeah. There's a whole other genre that came out of that. Well, and in a way this also sort of uh, spawns basic instinct and all that too. Ooh, yeah, I mean, it's, yeah. it, the, um, you know, not to mention the Michael, du like Michael Douglas seemed like he was always in these movies too. Like he was always in some sort of hypersexual type movie with like crazy women in it, you know, it's like that and disclosure and all that's coming out later on. Although, I mean, we talked about, you know, the one, two punch for 
Steve Martin this year, but you got to give that to Michael Douglas too with this and Wall Street. It's two pretty, you know, praised movies that came out the same Definitely. Season. He yeah. was working hard. Definitely. Yeah, there's a lot of them. Kevin Costner's in The Untouchables and No Way Out. Yeah. Shares in Moonstruck and in The Witches of Eastwick. Like, yep. there's, a, there's a lot of people like working overtime this year. Yeah. Um, another uh, huge cult hit would be Evil Dead 2. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, Evil Dead 2 is the movie that it's i think that's the one everybody refers to when it, it when it comes to evil dead like the first evil dead uh feels like they were going for a sincere horror movie um and then the second one they sort of realize how ridiculous that first one is and 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 really go uh off the wall and let bruce and just sort of unleash bruce campbell on us and everything um yeah talk about a subgenre right i mean oh, like, yeah. the, this what was a horror comedy that came before this? I guess maybe like Tales from the Dark Side or things like that. But like, you know, I mean, that in cinematic format, this would seem like kind of breaking the mold. Nothing yeah. that was both at the same time, right? Like we just did Little Shop of Horrors, which I guess has some horror elements, but it's not mm-hmm. bloody. You know what I mean? It's yeah, like, yeah, in this the woods is the first bloody. thing I can think of that's just like this. Yeah. And Evil Dead 2 is super bloody, but it's uh, it's one of those where it's it's always done for effect i mean like the walls explode with blood in this movie (laughs) and and but it's it's never meant i don't think it's ever meant for you to be like oh no blood coming out of the walls you're just like oh my god it's so ridiculous you know there are some times where it's genuinely scary actually and uh kind of like cabin in the woods ended up being uh with joss whedon you know years later Mm -hmm. but there's some genuinely like creepy moments but then you're reminded when you see like a moose head, like cartoonishly laughing at, at Bruce Campbell, that uh, that it's a comedy. Yeah. Um. What else, guys? Well, we've already. I mean, we've already talked about all the ones I think are going to contend. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's still a handful of. Uh, you guys forgot to mention this movie. Movies that we should probably mention, like yep. uh, um, Good Morning Vietnam. Yes. Uh, yeah. Good morning. Vietnam is kind of an odd movie to sit through. Um, it is. If you are, if you are a big Robin Williams fan in 1987, you're sort of expecting him to be just, just, uh, a comedy DJ all the way through it. Um, but it's got a lot of drama in it. It does a lot of drama. And in fact, it, it, it like very serious <laughs> stuff in it, but you know, the, the, the draw for that movie was him being a, a DJ and riffing and all that. And, and that's where that movie gets its fun and its motor. Like when it gets serious, it's kind of, I don't know if I really like that direction, but, yeah. uh, it's, it's still a solid movie. I remember the trailers. It was sold as a straight up zany radio DJ comedy. As oh I yeah. Like there was none of no warning for how much serious stuff was actually going to be in there. Yeah. Uh, I believe the number one box office hit was three men and a baby. Mm. Um, Leonard Nimoy directed three men and a baby. (laughs) If anybody. Yeah. I mean, uh, that's a, that's sort of a crazy, uh, thing. Like you would never, ever like if I could probably go to people on the street and ask who directed three men and a baby and get zero out of a thousand on that. Um, (laughs) because you would never guess that, but that was a huge, huge hit. And, uh, I think it has faded over the years. Uh, yeah. But at the time you couldn't have get, couldn't have gotten three bigger names than Selleck and, uh, and, uh, Danson and Gutenberg all in one movie. Yeah. They were all huge right then. Yeah. Between 
Beverly Hills Cop 2 and The Lost Boys and Three Men and a Baby, I wonder what like the box office ranking was because they were all pretty huge hits, weren't they? I will look it up real quick so that we can figure that out. Um, but uh, yeah, like uh, Three Men and the Baby may only be known now for the so-called ghost Right. Uh, situation that that actually isn't a ghost at all and a lot of people think that it's the ted danson cutout but I, looking i i remember when that rumor first came out uh, and then people were debunking it by saying oh it's a it's a, it's a ted danson standee that you see later in the movie that's what that was when you look in the background it's definitely not that ted danson thing mm. Um, so I don't know what it is. It, it's probably just a kid that got smuggled onto the set or something. He's just, you know, looking out at the scene or whatever, but I don't know. Um, what else guys? Oh, geez. Uh, La Bamba. We're, I'm starting to get <laughs> movies that I remember, but you know, they don't hold a bunch of weight for me anymore. I've lost boys. I watch lost boys like crazy as a teenager. Um, yeah. Now, my parents weren't watching me. Um, let's talk about lost boys for a minute. Mm-hmm. I hate this movie. Yes. I'm so glad to hear you say that. Oh my God. It's such a bad movie. <laughs> I, um, I watched horribly. Yeah. I think, <laughs> I think that's what it is now. See, I didn't watch it when everybody else did. I remember this being a huge movie and you, you know, you're talking, Jeremy, you're talking about like, you know, never getting to see it. I, I didn't see it until I was way older. Hmm. And, and then I saw it again, like on a midnight show. And the first time I watched it, I was like, this movie's not very good. And then the second time I watched it on a midnight show where they actually had uh, Corey Feldman come and like do a Q&A or something wow. before it. Because he was here for the like, uh, what they had that tattoo festival or whatever. So they just happened to run, you know, they, they scheduled Lost Boys around that time so he could come and do a Q&A. And people were asking really stupid questions and stuff. <laughs> he kept on, he like, he's like, what is it like? They're, people were asking him, like, what is it like? And, and, and it was about the character in his movie. Like, how was it like drinking blood or something like that? <laughs> and, and Corey Feldman would always be like, uh, well, I was a, I was, I'm an actor and I was playing a character in a movie. So it wasn't really, you know, <laughs> I was just sitting there going, man, he's going to leave Nashville thinking of nothing but the uh, stereotype <laughs> of Nashville. That reminds me of like a, the famous William Shatner moment on SNL where he's, uh, he's at the con- Trek convention. <laughs> you remember that one time that he ends up saying, it's just a freaking show. Get a life. Um, okay. So uh, in 1987, three minute, a baby was number one. Lost boys is like way down there. It's like 39th. Or something oh, really? like that. So it was—I mean, it wasn't a huge hit, but although if you're looking at like it made 32 million in 1987, which you know who knows what. I bet if you put it in some sort of uh, you know inflation calculator, that would probably still be a decent hit today. Um, but the 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 four huge movies: a Three Men and a Baby, Fatal Attraction, Beverly Hills Cop Two, and Good Morning Vietnam. They all made over a hundred. Wow! Hmm. Wow! Um, another one, just to briefly, we don't need to talk about it too much is monster squad, because I just remember how, how many people would go around and say, I'm going to kick him in the nards. Yeah. Wolfman don't have nards and all that. That like, that was the, if you were 10, that's something you said all the time. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and that's all we need to say about that movie. That's all we need to say about the movie. Um, mannequin. Yes. Do you guys remember much about Overboard? Do you remember that? <laughs> no. I I don't. I know it's got uh, Kurt Russell in it and yeah, Goldie, huh? 
Yeah, it's Goldie Hawn, and I, I think she like has a concussion and like blacks out and goes over her yacht. She's a rich, wealthy socialite and uh, goes over her yacht and is somehow rescued by Kurt Russell and his ragtag band of, of boys. I th- Kurt Russell convinces her that they're married. And <laughs> while she's amnesic, he convinces her that they're married. and she, Which is also known as rape in some circles. It's absolutely rape. Why is there so much rape in the 80s? Yeah, I don't know. I and really she just, don't. Yeah, she just kind of blossoms into this romance with him. And then she feels she figures out that she actually does love him and all that stuff. And of then, course. You know, the because it's, it makes it all okay. Because if, if she didn't love him in the end, then that's like one creepy ass movie we just watched. Yeah, well, it's a creepy it already ass movie is. anyway. It already is. And um, I watched it as a tween. Yes. We we also mentioned in another p- podcast, for whatever reason, and I can't remember why, but batteries not included. Yeah, we were talking about Cocoon. It was a, it was a punchline, the Cocoon. Uh, and we thought, like, well, maybe some of the same people did it, but they didn't. So like, it was just, I guess it was one of those, well, well, Cocoon was a success. Let's make batteries not included like that. <laughs> Uh, what else is on this list? Anything else of note that we might need? And there's like, you know, there's like Superman four, which is one of the worst super is the worst Superman ever made. And the living daylights, uh, which is one of the worst bonds ever made. Yeah. So you had uh, franchises were not doing very well. Uh, back then, um, uh, throw mama from the train, another big comedy that came out back then. Um, nice. uh, a, a, a sort of a comedy remake of strangers on a train. Mm. Um, it's, it, I don't, it's, I, I liked it, but I don't think, I don't think it's generally considered a like, you know, good movie in general. Um, but, uh, that's about it. I think we're ready to vote on this. I think we are. Did Barrett, do you know the, the order? Today's order is Chris Barrett and Jeremy. I'm last. All right. Jeremy's got the deciding vote. We didn't talk about adventures and babysitting either, by the way. Because we shouldn't. <laughs> that line I mean, that movie has got one line that everybody quoted, and then and I was like, but, but it shows up in the most popular feature films of 1987 for IMDb. Number one. I'm sure. Over Princess Bride. It's not good. And yeah, and and I think we briefly mentioned Dirty Dancing, right? No, no. but I, we just did just then, and again, that's, I mean, that's all I need yeah. to say about that movie. Well, and Dirty Dancing was a sort of a, I mean, both of those movies are just sort of generate, there's a lot of generational movies in there where it's just like, if you were around at the time, you liked it, and that's about it, you know? Well, I Had the Time of My Life was was a huge hit, and that was actually sung by Patrick Swayze, wasn't it? Yeah, it no, was. No, not, not that one. The She's Like the Wind was oh, right, was, right, right. was sung by Patrick ah, Swayze. Ah, okay. The other one, I can't remember. The There was two singers on that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but... She's like to win. And uh, we also uh, we also skipped over Empire of the Sun, which was Christian Bale. Um, it sort of, I don't know if it was his first role, but um, Steven Spielberg uh, was still going along for that sort of like, I'm going to start making epic movies now. He, he, I, he sort of running away from his fantasy roots, I guess, in a way, because he, he was making a lot of these serious movies. Empire of the Sun. Uh, I remember watching the Oscars and night uh, for the 1987 and everything, and I kept kept going back and forth. Last Emperor, Empire of the Sun. Last Emperor, Empire of the Sun. Last Emperor, Empire of the Sun. Um, they're they're not the same movie by any any stretch, but they they, they sort of see, you know have the same themes or whatever. Anyway, all of that just to get uh, to cover our ass and everything, and I will go on and uh, vote for the Untouchables. 
Nice. Um, I don't think there's a better movie on this list, although Princess Bride is easily up there. I think those two in general are my are my favorite two movies, but I'm going to have to go with The Untouchables because of just how enjoyable it is all the way through. It's De Palma at his best. It's the best. I think it's got the best soundtrack. It's a it's a an exciting look at a real time in history, which, you know, means that there's a lot of stuff that was not true in that movie. But Mm -hmm. um, but it it, you can't get a more exciting movie and uh, I, I can't vote against it. Yeah. The only thing that I remember when I was watching it last night, it just dawned on me how amazing this movie is from top to bottom. Then I started just like finding things that were like, what's wrong with this movie? And one of them is like the cavalier use of guns. Mm-hmm. Like they basically just hold those fuckers wherever they want to. And like, as they're going through the post office of the bank, they're just like <laughs> pointing at random people. When Kevin Costner r- runs home to find his daughter, like he hugs her with a gun in his hand. Yeah. 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 So I, I love the untouchables for the same reason that we've talked about it ad nauseum. And I love princess bride as well. It's, it's just kind of tattooed on my heart, mm-hmm. uh, but I'm going to vote for probably throw uh, a fly in the ointment here. I'm going to vote for full metal jacket. Ooh. Uh, mm. uh, as you may have picked up, I'm a Stanley Kubrick slut. Yes. And I love just about everything that he's done. And like Chris was saying, he's absolutely correct. The second half of this movie gets total short shrift. Uh, it's terrific. And the interplay with it, each of them, I would put this up there, if not above um, Apocalypse Now and the other Vietnam movies. Uh, I think it's a it's a masterwork, and and the first half of it is certainly nothing to sneeze at. I mean, it's Vincent D'Onofrio and Arlie Ernie and Matthew Modine. Like everybody is really, really on top of their game, probably because Kubrick is such an autocrat and you know, really got the best out of everybody, no matter how torturous it was. So that's my pick. I love it. All right. Wow. So where do we stand? We got one for Untouchables and one for Full Metal Jacket? Yep. Yep. Oh, boy. And I'm the tiebreaker, and I'm tempted to throw broadcast news in here just to fuck everything up, because I really do like that movie that much. Um, but, uh, you know, here is yet another example of where a really complicated discussion was easy, because I'm voting the Untouchables. Mm, um, nice. I want to go... Um, out of my way to talk about Princess Bride. And this is the first time I've actually like had a hard time choosing. Um, mm-hmm. I think Untouchables is clearly my favorite movie from this year, um, but its quality cannot be denied. Uh, and then you go look at Princess Bride, just as good a quality and probably arguably more cultural impact. And I went back and forth a lot. I really did. But um, it's Untouchables and uh, we win. Well, and to show that um, how close this is also on the IMDb, and you're talking about people voting and everything, I mean, The Untouchables comes in at 7.9, The Princess Bride at 8.1, and Full Metal Jacket at 8.3. They're all right there in that same cluster there. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's, uh, I mean, they're all fine examples of, of, I mean, you can't lose with any of these movies. Yeah, you're that's right. That's a crazy high rating for Full Metal Jacket because people, when you think about Kubrick movies, people don't really put this up there as one of his, you know, top three, I guess. Yeah, you know? I think that's just that I think people, 
uh, have, I think back in 1987 and then the following years, you had a lot of people who were like huge clockwork orange, 2001, mm-hmm. the, and the shining type fans who were like, well, this is, this is, you know, not a great movie. And of course we're not a great, not his best movie or whatever. Yeah. So they sort of dismissed it. And, uh, I think that also it took so long to make it cause it's Kubrick, you know, he took forever. He was, this was supposed to come out before platoon and yeah, 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 yeah. And so he's, he's fallen behind all those other movies that we just talked about. Yeah. So, and you have this long list of Vietnam movies that have come out at this point. And by the time his comes out, it doesn't seem as fresh, but now when you have, you know, 29 years of uh, space to think about it. It's really, I think, I think you're right. I think it's the best of those Vietnam war movies. Um, and uh, so, I mean, I think after, you know, after a while you get a lot of the the, the newcomers to when they first hear about Kubrick and they start watching these movies, they're like, Oh, we watching these with fresh eyes. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think that's how that rating has gotten higher over the years because they realize, Hey, this isn't just a first half movie. It's a whole whole thing is good. Well, if you had asked me at midnight last night, it would have been a unanimous vote for Untouchables. So wow. I really had to think about it. Uh, and that was that was a very tight group. Yeah. And, and it's weird. Like after a vote like that, I feel like we're short shrifting Princess Bride, but we really aren't. I mean, it, it it's just the way it is. We have th- we three people, three votes here. If it's it was, the way it is, Rob Reiner. Just fucking deal with it, man. That's right. Well, I mean, we should we should reiterate that we're not trying to pick the best movie you know, quantitatively, right, for everyone. It's right. the three of us picking our best movie from that year. And That's so, correct. And we love Princess Bride. It's not like, it, I mean, it came in second. It's not like it, it's terrible. Or it came in a third, I guess. But Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it's just, it, it's such a great movie, but there, it's, it's such an amazing year, too. And, you know, if you went out and, and took a poll, you'd probably get more Princess Bride and, everything but this is us as like yeah, Andy Murray had played tennis in like you know the early 90s or something like that he probably <laughs> would have had a bunch of you know a bunch more championships yeah yeah it's just the it's just the time it came out but uh, anyway um that is our 1987 wrap up and now we're gonna go and change some gears a little bit and we're gonna talk some TV, but not just, it's not TV, it's HBO, right? <laughs> um, uh, we're going to talk some Game of Thrones. You know nothing, Jon Snow. That's what I do. I drink and I know things. And winter is coming. Watch out, there are some spoilers in this episode. We've had, we've had, a, uh, I think we've had quite a bit of requests to talk about Game yeah, of Thrones. A lot of questions um, based on Game of Thrones too. And, uh, and yeah, and, and the sixth season, uh, just wrapped up and, uh, I'll, I'll, I'll say what I said the other day uh, when Game of Thrones came up, when I saw the finale to this season, I, it's weird how a piece of fiction like this can make you think that you're actually witnessing history as it <laughs> unfolds. Um, the opening 20 minutes of the f- season finale, the season six finale are, are really good. I mean, they take a cue from the Godfather there and everything. It's uh, it's, it's one of those things where the, the, the person of power isn't actually at the place where, you know, they're making all their moves, but they're making all the moves. Yeah. And, um, 
And so like it, it's the way it starts off the music, that piano that you never hear in game of Thrones at all. Yeah, it was, I even tweeted, this is feels like lost. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, I, I mean, I don't now. I don't know how far we're going to get into like, you know, is it, we're going to just talk about season six or we're going to talk about it as a whole, um, I have a lot to say about the finale, but uh, what, where do you guys want to direct this? Well, I want to start by saying that season six finale is one of the most entertaining and satisfying pieces of television I've ever seen in my entire life. Yeah, like, absolutely. Start to finish. And it's not satisfying in the sense that it's all a uh, fan service. And most of that happened the episode prior with, with the Battle of the Bastards, where they right. sort of did a bunch of wish fulfillment for what the fans had been wanting. Um, and I think to their detriment, did not throw us any heartbreaking twists at the end of that episode. Yeah. But in the finale, there's a lot that was predicted to happen. Almost none of it does, but everything that happens is just, that's, that show is at the top of its game right now. And all oh, the performances, Lena, <laughs> what's her Lena, last name? Lena Hattie. Oh She's so good in that episode. And the, just the look between her and her brother when he comes back and sees how much has changed in the short time he's been gone. Oh yeah. And that those that glance between the two of them, I mean, God, I was I was out of my chair cheering when that episode ended. It was so good. And I've always loved the show. I think the show has always been fantastic, but I just feel like they're at, they've reached another level somehow. Yeah, they the, the that whole season finale thing wasn't really possible until uh, episode eight, where they decided that trial by combat was not going to be uh, enforced anymore. Right. They wouldn't be able to do that. And so there's like this uh, mysterious thing when uh, his, her whisperers guy, Kyburn comes up to her and says, uh, the rumors, uh, the little, ch- the, the little doves have found, uh, found proof or whatever of it or whatever. It's like, how much? And she's like, you know, is it as much as we thought? It's much more. And, uh, that's exactly what they're talking about at that point. That's that next move. Because yeah. the whole move was to get the mountain to fight for her and the trial by combat. And, um, and then they, they stripped it away from her. And then it's like, all right, well, all right, I guess we're going to blow up everything now. Um, well, and I don't think any of us are book readers, right? Not, we've not. Have you ever read the books? I have no. not. Although ha- having, I, and I just watched this whole series again, uh, starting a starting with episode seven of uh, season six. I started with uh, season one, episode one, and watched all the way up to season six finale um, today. I've watched them all through there and after watching all that i'm like maybe i should read the books too i'm kind of that interested in this show where i i want to get some other further backstory what's Uh, interesting to me is how he continually whether i'm sure this happens in the books but i'm talking now about the show they continually bring in new characters to fill the void left by people they've killed and like i remember i'm watching the show i don't know anything about what's gonna happen um season two spoiler coming um People start dying. Yeah. Uh, people that uh, care about start dying. Um, and at the, at the end of season two, like most of the major characters are dead. And I'm like, well, who's going to be the major characters moving? But they have never struggled to find new major characters to match with the perfect actor or actress. And I'm just engaged constantly. Yeah. Well, like in season one, Tyrion Lannister is sort of a like, well, he's just kind of he's he's traveling around. He's visiting the wall. He's you know, doing all this stuff. And then, uh, by far the big, one of the biggest moves of the entire series is when he gets accused of 
trying to kill Bran, uh, you know, while he's uh, in his room or whatever. And so um, Catelyn tries to take him to the uh, the Vale and to get a trial and everything. Um, and that's what uh, sort of sets that whole series in motion, really, because she, she very stupidly does that. Like people like tell, oh, yeah, that looks like Tyrion's uh, that looks like Tyrion's sword or whatever. So she, based on that, <laughs> then she brings them, brings them to the veil and it pisses off the Lannisters and the Lannisters start making their moves and and everything. Uh, but you think Tyrion's just kind of like there to be kind of like a, a I guess, um, comic relief in some way. Um and then he turns into such much a big, a much bigger character. Well, he's still even at the end of season six. He's still been the most effective ruler of uh, of King's Landing that we've ever seen. Right? Yeah, yeah. He cared about the people. He tried to protect them. He devised a strategy for that battle that was actually correct. Um, he doesn't get any of the credit for it because he gets whacked in the face and knocked unconscious. Um, but nobody that's ruled that city has come close to being as good as he is. Yeah. Well, he also he a lot of what happens with him on that that uh, battle of the Blackwater and everything is that. Uh, yeah, he gets knocked out, but also uh, Tywin Tywin Lannister with the Tyrell shows up at the last minute. Yeah, and and like takes the glory basically, and he gets when he gets knocked out, he wakes up and everything he did is changed. You know, he had put Pycelle in the in the cells and everything, and he now he's like over him and and looking at him like you know, you know, like oh, they, they, is this going to be a little bit different from your uh, hand of the king room? But uh, you don't need. <laughs> that much space you know all that um uh you know all that stuff that he had worked so hard to get to is is you know vanished by the well, time that's Tywin the thing, that that Tywin showing up i even think when we talked about this at lunch the other day that was one of my examples of the show always makes you think you know how something's going to end and at the last minute throws a wrench into it because you were pretty ready for the city to be sacked by stannis and his men at this point yeah Battle had turned. She's sitting on her throne. I think she's even getting ready to drink poison. Yeah, and she's then, about to give Tommen poison. <laughs> yeah, and then, you know, Tywin comes in on a horse, and you're just like, oh, shit, the Lannisters are even more strong now. Like, that's what the Battle of the Bastards season six penultimate episode was missing. Yeah. Uh, because everything that happened was exactly like, you know, he comes up over the ridge with the army, like Gandalf, the, the dawn on the second day or whatever, and that's what you expected. And then I was kind of thinking, maybe somebody's going to stab somebody in, in the face or something. Maybe Sansa will die. Or I, just, I was expecting a Game of Thrones shocker, and that episode doesn't provide it. But yeah. they may more made up for it with the finale. Yeah. Can I ask something real quick? <clears throat> sure. So as, as somebody who's been keeping up with season six on recaps and stuff like that, but I haven't seen anything past the... Uh, the first episode, how much of a departure do you notice from the, the series up to now uh, because it was already written uh, up until till this season where they kind of were without a safety net? None. I don't see. Really? It doesn't feel well, cooperated with him pretty closely. I think they know where he's going with the book, even if they're doing different things. I think there are there are some differences, and like that that episode nine that you're talking about is a huge. I I, I think a lot of people have realized there's no way that's the way George R. R. Martin would write that. Yeah, um, that's kind of but uh, but the also the other thing that keeps coming up with like season six is even though it was satisfying as far as entertainment is concerned and everything. 
there there's a lot of story missing in some of the stuff that they're doing. They get they're rushing now. They realize that they're close to the end. So they're they're like there's gobs of backstory now that they're just kind of racing over. Um, and well, in, in some storylines, it's the opposite, right? Like we spent almost two seasons with Arya training over in Bravos. Yeah, we? yeah. See, they and and I don't know. I mean, I felt like they've always known they've grown, they were going to have this many seasons. So I don't know why they did waste so much time in Arya doing that, especially since they didn't really get to the point of what no one was and all that like yeah. it, the the whole reason the whole thing about you know becoming no one and everything always sounded like to me and i'm sorry if this is the point and i'm being dense but the point of no one always seemed to me is becoming someone else that's what it always seemed like to me and but they didn't really have any rules set down in place for what becoming no one actually entailed and so there so there's a lot of like frustrating like things where she's you know, you see her training and getting and getting struck when she tells lies and uh, all this other stuff. And I, I mean, I guess the whole point is that it's working up to her saying, well, you know what? I'm not no one. I'm Arya Stark. And I, you know, I, I just wanted to do this so that I could learn how to kill fools. And that's <laughs> that's why I did this. And and by the way, getting into that in season six finale, she does kill some fools. She kills the phrase who are the uh, masterminds behind the red wedding and everything. It's beautiful. And it's beautiful. But I'll tell you one thing. I, after watching it the second time, Arya Stark is a psychopath, man. Oh, yeah. Um, I now, don't understand why she's making flirty eyes at uh, Jamie in the bar, like before she goes in for her kill. Cause it's, uh, that's her under there as the server girl. Why is she even pretending to flirt with him? Well, maybe it's just, maybe it's just uh part of the character that she's no. playing. And maybe, maybe it's just, maybe it's just that, haha, you're next. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, it could be something to that, to that effect. Um, but yeah, like, it's funny. I, I thought that I was like the, the show, is is making out this thing where she's you know, she's gotten revenge because you know her brother and her mother died uh, uh, at the hands of Walter Frey and the Lannisters and and the Boltons um, that she's finally getting her revenge and everything and they're showing her smiling and all that and then the second time you watch it you're like oh wait a minute this might not be good and I I watched the after the episode thing with uh, David Benioff and D.B. Weiss and Benioff actually says you know this is a, a great moment for Arya Stark because you finally see one of her enemies get vanquished but it's a troubling uh, part uh, spot for her character uh, because she's now she's just she's uh, she's bloodthirsty and that might turn into a, a big liability later on hmm. so he doesn't say about the liability. That's my words, but right. Uh, but but I feel like what I don't remember her whole list, but maybe she's got somebody on her list that shouldn't die, and uh-huh. um and maybe she kills the wrong person. You know, that's something that's very interesting that could come up in the next couple seasons. That is interesting because she doesn't know she doesn't know how much has changed by this point. Uh, she's been on Bravos for like you said, like two seasons now. Yeah, yeah. What else? Do we, what else do we want to get into in this? Well, um, who do we think? Who do who's who are we rooting for? Right, like that's a good question. The show's well, going to end yeah. at some point, I would assume, with either the Iron Throne being destroyed completely or somebody claiming that sucker for a permanent status. And you've got you've you've taken a lot of the pieces off the chessboard at this point as to who that could be. Um, we get major clues about Jon Snow's lineage and potentially he might be um, not Ned Stark's bastard, but 
somebody with a claim to the throne. We've got Danny over with her armies and dragons. We've got Tyrion, who everyone loves. And we got Bran, who's the three-eyed raven who I doubt would ever take the throne. But yeah. who else is there to root for that, that we think has a shot? I don't know if there are very many uh, other than those two. And the the uh, the question is, because Jon Snow, and since we're spoiler heavy here, um, uh, the Jon Snow is apparently, uh, if, if the big fan theory is correct and they seem to keep on, they seem to keep, uh, sort of, uh, I don't know, confirm, like I'm not confirming it, but at least leading us this way that Rhaegar Targaryen and Lyanna Stark are the parents of Jon Snow and legit and legitimately too, not the raped and all that other stuff that people have told the story. Um, because the story is Rhaegar raped her and that's mm-hmm. how Jon Snow, you know, or the baby that she had, um, um, well, they mm-hmm. didn't even know about the baby. They just knew, they just knew that she took her, she, he took her away and everything. But, um, that would mean that he's a Targaryen and there's a lot of like, sort of, you know, speculation. Does that mean that later on he might hook up with Daenerys, who's also a Targaryen and they they've never been shy about, you know, uh, interbreeding in these <laughs> in these things they've never been shy about it especially the first episode well, well even it? yeah the, well, the, the Targaryens tar- before the show ever started they were known for hundreds incest. of years yeah hundreds of years of incest and there was a there's that's what the sort of the defense is in the early going when um jamie and and cersei are both sort of found out and it's and it's amazing by the way just as a side note i didn't realize how openly people talked about that uh in 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 the first few seasons like when it's first it's just kind of like you know ned kind of figures it out but he doesn't tell anybody and and then he he, he just sends a note to stannis about it and then, and so then in these whisperings come along, but then all of a sudden people are like openly in front of Cersei and Jamie implying it, you know, or, or just saying right out, you know, uh, that, you know, I know, I know that you guys are fucking, you know, um, <laughs> But uh, that's one of their early defenses. I think Ned goes to Cersei in season one and and accuses him. And Cersei's like, well, the Targaryens did that for hundreds of years and nobody yeah. batted an eye. Yeah. Um, well, I'm wondering if we're not going to see that now that she's claiming the throne and Jamie's back in town. Are they going to play king and queen as brother and sister and not hide it? No, I would doubt that. I would doubt that completely. Like, uh, I mean, maybe. I mean, it would be interesting, of course, if, if the, she said, you know what? I've vanquished my enemies and this is just going to be okay with everybody now. <laughs> well, I think she's in a place now. I mean, this is just my read on it, but I think she's in a place now where she's like, disagree with me. I'll burn you with wildfire. Right. Uh, maybe I, she um, doesn't care. Deal with it. I want to, I do want to discuss, especially since we are cinema sins here. Um, the, that amazing finale has what I believe is a huge plot hole in the beginning, the, in the, in that first 20 minutes. Hmm. Uh, if you think about the plan that they've, uh, that Cersei's concocted here, where she's going to blow up the Sept of Baylor and blow up everybody in this, in this thing, it requires, uh, so there's a, there's a point where the high, Se- uh, high Septon goes and tells him or the high Sparrow, I guess he's calling himself the high Septon by the end of it, but, uh, high Sparrow, uh, tell, tells, uh, Lancel Lannister, you need to go and get your, you know, you need to get Cersei here and everything. So he leaves with a couple of that faith militant, 
and they're going to go get Cersei. But instead, they get distracted by this little kid running yeah. down the stairs. Yeah. And, and, and instead of getting Cersei, which is the most important thing, in this whole thing, he he just runs after this kid because oh he's running away from the the sept of Baylor and like and so he gets so distracted by that he goes and runs through catacombs looking for him and all <laughs> this and then that's where the big huge reveal comes from like they're using the wildfire they're gonna blow up the whole sept and all that if and and so and here's where it's a huge hole for me is that if he's not distracted by this kid running down the stairs. Cersei doesn't have anybody protecting her. The mountain is at Tommen's room. Yeah. And there's, and the, the faith Milton is only scared of the mountain. So it, Cersei's just there by herself in her own room, easily gotten caught and, and then thrown it and, and like taken to the, it would yeah. have taken a long time, obviously that she would have probably gotten blown up, but I felt like that was a huge hole. Well, and doesn't it feel like that was the part of the plan on Cersei's side was let's distract Lancel, lead him down into the catacombs, stab him in the back, but he'll still be alive enough to see right before the wick burns down. Like, <laughs> yeah, and, yeah. And who lit those candles? And do they in this day and age? This is really getting cinema sinsy. But how do they know when to light that candle so that right it will finally reach the the green shit right at the moment they want it to? Like yeah, maybe they melted the candles down to a certain point and then like all right, when Lancel comes down here and chases after you, and he surely will, <laughs> um, put light these melted candles up so and then run, run like the wind because it's about to blow up. It would have made more. I mean, I get I get why the show did this so that yes. we the viewer get. A chance to see the reveal uh, absolutely the same way and it, and it doesn't take away from the enjoyment of the show no, at all no. but they should have planned to just kill lancel instead of having <laughs> sending children to distract him right. send a person with a sword yeah what are we going to do with daenerys because this season ends with her she's she's headed to king's landing now she's got a thousand ships she's got all three dragons she's got the iron islands people in their ships and they're literally on the water. The last shot is panning up over Grey Worm standing on a boat as the dragons fly overhead. She's not going to be on the water for a whole season, is she? No, no. I, I mean, well, and I hope not, obviously, because, I mean, I mean, it, it's the narrow sea, right? You know what <laughs> I just realized they might do? They might pull a brand. They might not show her much at all the next season. Yeah, and then when we do see her show up, like maybe in the finale, it's to attack or what have you. I don't know. It'd be boring if we kept cutting to her on a boat. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I hope not, and I don't think they will. I mean, what we're getting seven episodes of uh, next season, yeah, and then another seven, two, two, yeah, two more seasons of seven episodes, and so the, the you know we're we're if if uh, the last few series that I've watched that have done that are any indication, they're going to be moving at a breakneck speed um, because there's a lot to settle at this point because yeah, Daenerys is going across the narrow sea and she's going to go to King's Landing. The question is, does she get there before the white walkers get there? Mm. Uh, and, and there's a, there was a sort of a throwaway thing Um at the uh, at the end of that finale, where Uncle Benjamin says he can't go through the wall because it's uh, got magic and uh, transcriptions in it, or something yeah. like that, and so nobody dead can get through that. So, so the White Walkers are going to have to find a way to get over the wall. And I'm wondering if it's because I'm wondering if it's going to be Bran that leads them through Ooh. the through the wall because. 
Uh, remember the reason why they're able to get down in in uh, in that little cave under the tree is because he goes and wargs yeah. where they are, and they touch him while he's doing it. Yeah. Um, and the only reason why they're able to pass under that thing is because of you know uh, screenwriting. Um, so like I feel like if he does cross the wall, then that's how they'll get through there. Uh, is I mean, am I am I far reaching on this because it doesn't seem like they would be able to get through there any other way. Bran's going to have to cross the wall. He's going to have to go back past the wall. Here's a question I've been asking lately, because I truly have lost track. Are, are, are any dire wolves left alive? Yeah, is there's ghost, um, still alive? ghost. Ghost is still alive. Why and didn't he that, fight in that battle? Which battle? The Battle of the Bastards. Oh, um, I don't remember why. I'm just glad to know he's okay, because they've killed a bunch of them. Yeah, I, I mean, I have a feeling that instead of, I mean, I have a feeling that the reason why is because there's just no reason to put him out there in a in the middle of a battle like that. Mm-hmm. Like he's more close quarters type thing. But Bran and Rickon both lost their dire wolves this season. Yeah, yeah. Um, Bran lost his in that Hodor <laughs> episode. Oh my god, um, that and- was epic. Yeah, it that was. was as every bit as epic and whammy as Walkabout, that episode of Lost where we find yeah. out that Locke is in a chair. I believe the same guy, one of the, uh, I think Jack Bender may have done that episode. Uh, the same guy who was on Lost. Wow. Well, then um, that guy's a genius. Yeah, Jack Bender was a big Lost director. And then he, I believe he did. Yeah, he did the episode The Door. Um uh, getting back to yeah, he Bran lost his in that battle, and then Rickon lost his off screen. Uh, basically, they just show the head. Yeah, uh, but there's also that Nymeria, I think is the name uh, that they let go early in the first season, and oh. we haven't seen haven't seen since. And I guess there's like the the idea that 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 wolf might come back at some point. Uh, so that leaves they have Ghost Nymeria and. That's it, I think. Yeah, I think the rest all lost theirs. All the other ones are dead. Um, but um, that sucks. Yeah. Um, what else to talk about? Um, I guess we could talk about that Hodor episode. Well, I mean, uh, I, it gut punched me so hard. And it's what's great about that episode is it's not just the sacrifice he's making, but the mm-hmm. double layer that that by warging in this moment, Bran created Hodor. Yes. And then, it's so gut punching. I ran upstairs. My wife has never seen an episode of the show. I spent 20 minutes just t- explaining backstory to her so that I could explain why I wanted to cry right now. Right. He, he, I was actually ahead. trying to tell Barrett this the other day and yeah. like and and I was like I was like, "Okay, so and it, and then and when you start telling the story, you're like, but okay, wait a minute. There's some other stuff you need to know too." Yeah. Yeah. There's like this a huge <laughs> amount of backstory that gets it goes into this being a payoff moment. And, uh, and, and so like, uh, you know, what's weird about that episode is that when she, when, uh, was it Shira or she, what's that uh, girl that he's with, um, screams, hold the door for the first time. I actually, and, and then you see him like you see, uh, you know, he's and his name is Willis when he's younger, when you see him like suddenly like, you know, his eyes paced over and everything. I was like, Oh Oh, this is where they're going, aren't they? Yeah. So like at first, at first I was like, I don't know if I like this or not, but every time I've watched it since or seen a clip of it, I just nearly tear up. Yeah. Because it's it's it's, well it's, it's it's just well done. Yeah. 
I don't know. I mean, there's six seasons of show. I just think that, that it's so popular that it just set that finale set viewings records um, for the show. Uh, more people are watching it now than ever. And I think we just wanted to kind of share our thoughts of this season and the, and the show in general. Um, in terms of specifics. Uh, well, okay, I guess we could talk a little bit about what our favorite moments and favorite characters are of the show. Um, um, I, I guess I'm, I'm, I'm trying to think of what my favorite moment is because there's so many like just astounding uh, things that have happened. I am, I'm just like anybody who was on YouTube when that red wedding thing happened. Cause I had no idea that was happening. Yeah. Me neither. Um, and, and, uh, and what's weird though, is when you watch that season again, it's so inevitable. It's so like, like you should know that it's coming, Yeah. but you, but you want to believe in Rob Stark so much. You're like, yeah, they killed Ned, but they're not going to kill Rob. He's like the hero now. And, uh, and so like just a whole that, but you know, when you watch it again, you're like, oh my God, this is really just like, you know, him trying to marry some other woman as, and I don't blame him. I would have died for her too. Um, <laughs> uh, when he's, uh, you know, marrying another woman and it's just like sort of just out in the open and saying, you know what, I don't need to, I don't need to go by my word, you know, who cares? Uh, and all that. And sort of openly flaunting it and, and bringing his wife to the phrase and saying, here's my wife, deal with it and all that. Um, you know, it's, it's very, it's just a sort of a, you know, it's amazing how inev inevitable it is. And it's, uh, it's, I think it's even better when you watch it the second time. I love one of my favorite scenes is the fight between the mountain and Prince Oberon. Yeah. Um, yeah. To it's a fight to the death. Basically Tyrion has chosen trial by combat and Prince Oberon's going to be his champion. And the, the way that it's staged and shot, um, unless you're just the kind of person that's constantly looking over your shoulder for what's coming. Uh, it really feels like he's about to win that fight. It really. Yeah. yeah. And, and uh, just a hair too much cockiness and the mountain flips it on him and then uses the same language back at him and then crushes his face with his hands. Yes. And I was gut punched because everybody, nobody wants Tyrion to die and no, nobody expected that he was going to. And of course he hasn't, but this was the most likely way out because Oberon only tells him I'll be your champion like the episode before this. And you're thinking, yeah. all right, this is the, this is the rescue for Tyrion and Cersei's going to be so pissed. But no, no, That's not at all. I can watch that anytime, that scene. That's definitely the most visceral death that they've ever shown. I think on, on the, I mean, there's been a lot of throat slitting and the, you know, um, you know, getting, getting a pregnant belly stab during the red wedding is pretty shocking, but that right there was, it's, it's just insane. You know, like, it, like you, it's happened so quickly. And I think there was something that they, they sort of talked about earlier too. Somebody, I think, it, I think it was Braun, who's a great character, by the way. He is. Um, Braun says something like, you know, I could probably hold my own against him uh, for a little bit, but I, if I just make one mistake, that could be it. And sure enough, that's what happens yeah. with Oberon in that scene. I feel like Braun is sort of uh, almost kind of a um, Han Solo of Westeros. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> kind of like a sword, does whatever he wants, uh, you know, rubs people the wrong way sometimes, but really knows his shit and is handy in a fight. What sort of tells you everything about Bronn is there's a scene early on when Tyrion has him as his uh, squire, and I think later on he has him as his Kingsguard. Um, 
he there's a there's a point where he you know he fires that uh that uh was it what's that one guy who's the king's guard who they send to the wall oh yeah uh, they they send him send that guy to the wall which is another great scene by the way when Tyrion sends that send, you know has dinner with that guy and, and basically tells him he has no honor i'm going to send you to the wall <laughs> um but uh like uh when he he talks to bron afterwards he's like would you ever would you ever like kill women and children and everything? And Bron's like, I don't know how much you're paying me. <laughs> <laughs> and you think it's, it's one of those great moments in game of Thrones because, uh, because Tyrion has somebody he can trust. This is a guy who helped him in the trial by combat and the veil and all that. And, uh, and he feels like he's, it's a guy he can lean on, but he doesn't agree with him uh, politically. And it, it, the guy would do anything for money. And it's exactly what, uh, he's against, but he has to rely on this guy. Yeah, yeah. I have a question just for Chris. Actually, if you've just re, uh, if you've rewatched the whole series, I remember because I kept up with it for the first few seasons. But uh, it was season two, the Battle of Blackwater, as being like the first huge holy shit moment, mm-hmm. right? Where where they they uh, throw the wildfire and everything on there. Yeah, and is that is that accurate? Like, it, was that really the first? It, it, you know, huge set piece. To really go over the top in this show, I think so. Yeah, I mean that was up. That I mean, just like uh, classic Game of Thrones, episode nine is mm-hmm. always where you see these big, huge battles. Like I believe in season three, it's the Watchers on the Wall, which is the big, huge, uh, you know, uh, wildlings versus, um, uh, uh, you know, <laughs> the people at Castle Black, which I can't remember whatever well, reason. And Hard Home, the next season. Yeah, Hard Home was uh, uh, season, five? season five. Yeah, season yeah. five. Um, uh, but uh, they all they all do that in episode nine, and yeah, and that's um, in episode the first season. It was Ned Stark. Uh, that mm. was that was the big thing there. But uh, yeah, second season that was the first huge big action thing. Well, they were I think. doing a yeah. lot of TV tricks, right? Where like <laughs> you would hear a lot of shouting on a black screen and it would cut to like Rob Stark riding a horse through a bloody battlefield where we mm-hmm. were seeing the aftermath, but not the battle itself. And I think right. the, the Blackwater battle episode is the first time that we actually got to see all the fighting from such a massive event. Um, and they have, I think they've topped it every time they've tried. I thought the yeah. battle of the bastards was impressive as hell. Yeah, I, I think, and, and this is, and we keep coming back to episode nine about how some of the things are, um, disappointing about it and i'm going to say something really quickly good about it before i go back into the disappointing um but that battle is is amazing on it's on its own it's a it's uh as good as anything that's ever been in movies if not if not better um and the battle is amazing uh my only problem with that whole battle is just that there's no real history between ramsey and John, right. uh, they, they have the shared, uh, you know, that they're both bastards and, and, uh, both, both called snow at one point and, and everything. And then, yeah, I mean, just hearing what he did to Sansa would probably, um, uh, be enough, but, uh, to get him going in a battle like that, but they had no history whatsoever. So when it's, you know, a mo- when a episode is called battle of the bastards and everything, you're expecting, Oh, you know, th- there must be some huge tension between these two guys, but there's not really, 
you know, it's as it as it stands, though, great battle and and great uh, results in in the end. But uh, it's it's something that you kind of wish was a little bit more to it. And that episode is responsible for the opening of the satellite campus, uh, the Rickon School of Running Away from Things. (laughs) Yes, because if I'm running. And a man behind me is shooting arrows at me in an attempt to kill me. I am not running in a straight goddamn line. No. I, yeah, I mean... Uh, I'm Jack Black and the Jackal running all over the place. <laughs> Diving, rolling, all sorts of stuff, man. I'm getting I just on. made a Jackal reference. Yes, yes you, you did. did. <laughs> yes, you did. And I, for some reason, remember exactly what you're talking about. Yeah. Um, He's the but, weapon supplier, right? Yeah, yeah. man. Yep. Um, but uh, I think one thing, one other thing I wanted to talk about this is that uh, it's very interestingly heading in the direction of a feminist finale. Yeah. Um, where you have Cersei as the queen, you have Daenerys as the you know the you know Daenerys as the would be queen coming to uh, to conquer uh, King's Landing. You have Yara Greyjoy as a huge factor in getting the ships that she needs, getting some more people that she needs and more ships and all that. You have the people of Dorne who are all women at this point. You have, uh, um, Elena Tyrell is another one. Um, this is a, this is turning into a battle of all women nearly. And Sansa and Arya too. Yeah. And and Sansa and Arya. Sansa's coming into her own. She's finally, you know, you watch her. It's amazing how that character has grown. Yeah. And, and, uh, and in season six, she's just, uh, she's just fierce. It's just, uh, it's just great to watch. And, and I, and like I said, I'll be interesting, to, interesting to see what they do with the Arya character since she's got this bloodlust now and everything. I, it's going to be great seeing her going around just destroying people, but like, it's also going to have take its toll yeah, it at will. some point. But I, I, I'm very interested in seeing how that's all playing out because the men have been relegated to you know, to right hands and second bananas and all that, except for Jon Snow. Right. And, uh, and, and Jon Snow may end up being, you know, who knows what he may, he may end up being a King. He may end up being, you know, killed who knows. Um, but, uh, but, uh, it's, it's, it sets up a lot of interesting stuff, but, but like you were saying, you know, who are we rooting for to be, the ruler of this, maybe they get to the point where they, they feel like they maybe not even need a ruler or something. Maybe the, there, there's been a theme throughout the whole series where people have been talking about how maybe it's just best that there, we just destroy this thing, you know, like maybe we don't have a throne or, or a King or anything. Maybe everybody gets and becomes independent and everything. Um, it's a series about communism. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Everybody's equal, man. Everybody's the same, <laughs> just like we said. This is what we talked about. Um, but, uh, but yeah, I mean, you you almost have to think that that maybe this throne that they're going after is is uh, they'll realize how overrated it is and just destroy it by the end of it. But we have a lot of like scheming people who want to get who want to sit on the throne. You have. Uh, like as as far as the the only dudes that are left over who still want it are Littlefinger, and uh, that was at Euron, Euron Greyjoy, Greyjoy. Yeah, Euron Greyjoy, uh, and there, there who knows there might be a couple others that I'm forgetting, but their way to the throne is very long. Like I don't see how they could do it unless uh, Littlefinger somehow convinces Sansa to marry him and. Well, that's Sansa. what you said in that episode. I have a vision. It's me on the Iron Throne and you by my side. 
Right. And and I don't know. I mean, that would be an extremely surprising development if Sansa was suddenly just like, all right, I'll do this. I mean, yeah. she what is what is the positives for her uh, in that yeah. scenario? So I, I, I don't know how that how that plays out. That's the exciting thing about the next couple of seasons. Yeah, exactly. Um, anyway, I think we've talked a good deal about Game of Thrones here. If we, you know, I, I hope, hopefully that was satisfying to you. I think it was a good conversation, but who knows? Maybe it was our worst episode ever. I worst have no idea. Episode ever. Yes. Um, uh, at least we got 1987 to, to fall back on if, uh, you know, Game of Thrones somehow didn't, uh, connect. Anyway, like uh. That. Yeah, I liked it too. I think I think it was fun to get all that out, especially after I just you know watched it over again and all that. So that was fun to talk about. Anyway, uh, that is uh, that is for it for this episode. If you want to keep on going to SoundCloud, sound off, give us some comments, tell us how good or bad we are. Uh, we are reading those. And uh, so for that, for that'll be this uh, Simcast for this week. Uh, Chris Atkins and Jeremy Scott and Barrett Share. We'll see you next time. Thanks for listening. Comment on our episodes on our SoundCloud page. Check us out on YouTube, Twitter, Facebook, and Reddit. And be sure to visit cinemasins.com. Feel a breath in my face. Somebody <laughs> close to me. Can't look at her eyes. She's out of my <laughs> Just a fool to believe Just I Just a fool amazing. to believe. This was one of the songs in my middle school, seventh grade music class that, that we, I guess, analyzed. So there were several days in class where we listened to this song. And there was a girl who sat right in front of me. And she always had a snack. And every time it got to the part, I feel the breath in my face, she would turn around and blow Dorito breath in my face. Oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> every time. But I was, I, I was attracted to her, so I let it slide. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> you let anything slide when attraction's involved. Guys will put up with terrible people <laughs> if they're attractive. <laughs> it's like uh, uh, rap battles. Like... Honestly, if I watch an actual rap battle, I don't know who won. Like, everybody seems pretty damn good to me. But it always seems like the crowd in attendance is like, oh, that guy totally won. And I'm like, how do you know? Yeah, yeah. Yeah.